0: Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we will be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Welcome back everyone to Macro Minutes. My name is Peter Shafik,
1: and I will be your host today. The time of recording is uh, 2 p.m. London time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and today is the 4th of April, 2023. The last two times when we met here, we were talking a lot about financial turmoil, S V B, credit sways and the odds of whether the tentative wobbles that we saw in markets and in these institutions would morph into a systemic crisis. Financial market volatility exploded, bank stocks were falling sharply, credit spreads widened, and rates market reversed a lot of the implied rate, market, uh, rate hike um, implications that we had built in prior. The primary market for corporates, and specifically financials, froze. Now, looking back over the last week and a half, the picture looks much calmer, or at least the market collectively is uh, breathing a sigh of relief and is desperately seeking calm, which is also the title of today's edition. So I think the debate has moved on quite a bit, actually, already um, from financial to to how much financial tightening will remain as a result of the volatility that we've seen and whether this can be offset at least to some degree by less rate hikes than we previously assumed. Just overnight, the RBA has just followed the Bank of Canada and paused its rate hiking cycle. Short-end rate expectations for most of the other markets where central banks are still in hiking mode have now stabilized but at lower levels than about a month ago. So for Sonia, as the forwards, they're all pricing about 50 basis points less rate hikes than at the end of February. And in my mind, the debate will next move to whether the combination of tighter financial conditions and the fallout from the volatility that we had and lower rate hikes than we previously assumed would be sufficient to seriously dent the economy and, crucially, the labor market. And because of the lags, given that this question is unlikely going to be answered in the near term, the recent newfound tentative stability in the market led to a sharp drop in realized and implied volatility already. And I expect this trend to continue barring any further blow-ups. Longer-dated Treasury, bond, guild yields have all stabilized now and credit spreads have started to tighten again. Equity markets, including the better bank stocks in Europe, have recovered again. And I think this is sort of what we're trying to investigate today a bit more in detail. And to help us navigate this difficult landscape, I'm joined by a strong roster of RBC experts. So we'll start off with Blake Quinn, who will talk us through the latest developments in the U.S., and he has recently written a very insightful note about deposit flows in the U.S. banking system and a draw on the Fed's liquidity provisions. He'll start us off. He's going to be followed by Sean Théo. He's our head of European DCM and syndicate. He'll walk us through the developments in the primary market, which I have pointed out repeatedly are a key part of the financial conditions debate. Jason Doyle, which has views on the U.S. and Canadian bond market. and We'll finish off with Adam Cole, who can hopefully shed some light into what this all means for the U.S. dollar and other FX pairs. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Blake.
2: Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, so, look, I think it's been um, helpful uh, in talking with clients to kind of um, break down this recent banking stress into kind of three different um, components here. Uh, this just helps kind of clarify, um, you know, the arguments, clarify the discussion. So, um, the first, the, the the first impact I think we have um, that the Fed is concerned about is really contagion risk. Um, that was how. Interconnected are these banks to the financial system? You know, is is are, are these banking stresses going to uh, trigger some kind of broader fear that's going to turn into uh, broader banking issues and um, you know really kind of turn uh, into broader systemic risk, similar to what we've seen, um, you know, great financial crisis, something like that. Um, I think the second aspect here is really uh, the degree to which this banking stress has really been a harbinger of, of other troubles to come. Um, so not so much that um, you know, these banks were interconnected into other areas of the, finan- um, the financial system, but more, um, you know, more whether these are kind of a sign of difficulties that are going to come because of the, the Fed hiking rates. Um, and then lastly, I think, is the issue of the credit condition tightening. Uh, to what degree are we going to see a broad pullback by banks, um, you know, in credit creation, and to what extent is that going to drag on the economy? Uh, from the Fed's perspective, I think they're very confident on the first of these. I think, um, you know, we're essentially three weeks on, and we really haven't seen any signs the stress is broadening out uh, to other banks. Um, you know, aside from the liquidity provisions that have been tied to the bank failures, uh, most of the borrowing that we saw from the Fed and the FHLB system here in early March uh, looks to have largely been precautionary. We don't really see that demand um, you know, broadening out, uh, get, you know, getting larger, more increase, uh, you know, more demand for loans or advances from uh, the Fed or FHLB. And already we're seeing, um, you know, seeing that stress start to fade to varying degrees across these various products. Um, On the second piece, whether or not um, this banking stress is really a harbinger of of other troubles to come, I think you can construct a a decently convincing narrative that these were very idiosyncratic issues, relatively isolated issues of mismanagement, uh, rather than some kind of early sign of broader fragility uh, that's going to come because of rate hikes. But I don't think the Fed can be entirely sure of that. Um, So these doubts are likely to linger, and I think all else equal uh, do help to keep the terminal rate in check. Um, Lastly, on the pullback and bank credit provision, um, that is almost certainly going to happen. But the magnitude of that pullback and what that pullback is actually going to mean on Uh, the broader economy are still very very uncertain um you know this uncertainty more so than the other two uh items i mentioned is really why i think the fed pulled back from a 50 basis point hike in march and left their 2023 dot at five and an eighth um there's been a lot of effort across the street to kind of express this pullback in terms of rate hikes to be honest we don't have a major view on this and if anything um you know i think kind of relating hikes which work through the demand side to a tightening in lending which is really going on the supply side seems a bit fraught. Um, but you know, if we look at what the Fed did, if we assume that they were going to increase their 2023 uh, rate projections but didn't, uh, we can imply that their initial thoughts are that this is worth something in the order of one to two hikes. And if we look at how market pricing shifted, um, you know, that's suggesting that this has been worth two to three hikes uh, as well. Um, for our part, we still said hiking in May uh, and then pausing at five and an eighth, consistent with what the Fed said in their most recent SEP. Um, however, uh, we do wonder if the market's too quickly put down the possibility for a return uh, to the narrative that existed in early March, after Powell's congressional testimony, uh, before all this banking stress started. Uh, we could certainly envision a scenario where, you know, no other shoes drop on the banking side. Uh, confidence that these recent failures were idiosyncratic uh, starts to broaden. Um, banks start to tighten financial conditions, but it really doesn't drag on the economy to the extent many are expecting. Uh, we get data that can be used to meet or exceed expectations. Um, you know, I, I would say also oil continuing to rise, um, it, you know, if all those conditions, um, you know, take place in the, in the next two to three months, we could certainly see a scenario in which the Fed hikes in May, keeps the door open, and, and that the terminal rate comes back into play, which we think markets would really view as increasing the risk for a hawkish policy error. So, so that's not our modal view, but I think it's something that's cert- a risk that is meaningful enough uh, for people to keep in mind and, and something that should be hedged against. Um, so I will leave it there and, and pass it along. Thank you, Blake. That's very insightful, as always. And
1: with that, I'll hand it over to Chantel to speak about the developments in the primary market. Uh,
3: Thank you, Peter. Um, I guess if you look at the primary market, particularly in Europe, uh, and look back on the first quarter, in fact, before that, look at where we ended, ended last year. It wasn't necessarily going to be an easy quarter. Interest rates were still going up. We were nowhere near... Uh, terminal rates, uh, yields are rising, inflation was sticky, and I think the outlook for most issuers looking back at uh, November, December last year was that it was going to be a very tricky first quarter. Uh, but actually things p- panned out pretty well. Uh, I think partly because cash had built up, there hadn't been a great of supply in the fourth quarter, quarter of 22, uh, and as yields rose, investors actually thought it was a good time to put money to work. So for the first two months of of this year, things were pretty consistent and pretty steady. And, And conditions in primary, whilst maybe new issue premiums slightly wider, conditions were generally very good. The markets were open most weeks, most days, which is very encouraging. You need a good first quarter in DCM. And then we hit March. And again, beginning of March, uh, treasuries were just above 4%, bonds were heading towards 3%, they're roughly 2.7% uh, and then the first full week of March, that's when Silicon Valley Bank was uh, was uh, you know, effectively taken over by the FDIC. The week afterwards, the ECB put rates up as expected but then that weekend, Credit Suisse uh, ended up being merged with UBS and the week after that, you had the Fed putting rates up, the Bank of England putting rates up, etc. Uh, and, and things came very quickly to a halt. But what really struck me is how quickly Europe recovered, not just in isolation, but compared to other markets. Normally, Europe follows the U.S. lead. The U.S. is a very deep market, very deep investor base, very large issuer base. But actually, the U.S. was pretty quiet mid-March, whereas Europe actually plowed ahead pretty much business as usual. It It wasn't plain selling every day. But, for example, the week the Fed put rates up, the day the Bank of England put rates up, Uh, VDW came out in the euro market. It was a transaction we were involved in and ended up printing one and three quarter billion across three and six years. Uh, And demand was huge. The order book was just shy of six and a half billion. And that was in a market where perhaps in previous years, access to funding, and it really is key, access to funding was questioned, but it was definitely available. And really since then, we've seen a continual and fairly speedy improvement in conditions across all asset classes. Last week, for example, in the US, 25 billion printed. In Europe, 17 billion worth of investment grade. Of that, 7 billion was corporates, 10 billion financial institutions, plus another 13 billion in SSA. So a 30 billion week in Europe last week, which again, for the end of the first quarter, is a really strong week. Admittedly, in, the, in financial institutions of that 10 billion, the vast majority was cover bonds. And I guess if you look at the issues around Credit Suisse and the banking sector in general, it really shouldn't surprise anyone that the bulk of issuance has been covered. The the question really is, when will the senior market reopen? When will the subordinated market reopen? And dare I say it, what about A tier one? Well, this week is a good example. Just, Just a few days later... There's a, a, a European bank, BNP, in the market with a senior non-preferred transaction, uh, and they have demand over 2000000000 billion. They've tightened the pricing 20 basis points, uh, and it's gone incredibly well. AXA in the market today also with a Tier 2 transaction, again, gone incredibly well, the book over $4 billion. So it seems to me as if investors have really put the troubles that we saw in March to one side, and they've seen rates... Which dipped down, don't forget Burns, which were, as I said, around two, 270 or so, dipped down well below 2%, about 190. They're back up now at 230. I think investors see this as a, as, as a really good entry point, and they haven't seen the wall of supply really over the last two or three years, and perhaps that's partly more down to economic conditions than demand. Demand is still incredibly strong. New issue premium is back now in just two or three weeks to pretty much normalised levels. But the last stat I'll leave you on: quarter one, where does Europe figure compared to previous years? When you look at total issuance, covered bond space pretty much the same as last year, about 80 billion, slightly up on last year, but roughly uh, aligned. Senior space actually. 90 billion in Europe has already printed this year. That's up 50% year on year. That's an incredible number considering how tough it was across March. Corporate space up, maybe small, pretty much flat, not necessarily always a busy month in January, but normally a good month, but year on year pretty much consistent. Uh, and SSA is incredibly strong partly because the spread to core government yields is is, is so high given, how, given where swap spreads are. But overall in Europe, Q1 2023, $517 billion worth of investment-grade issuance. Not only is that a high number, that's the highest number the market has ever seen. It's a record quarterly issuance. And up 10% year-on-year. Year. And that compares to the U.S. market, which is down about 15%. So all in all, I think going back to your original question, Peter, has have the markets recovered? Well, not 100%, but they're, they're arguably far stronger, far quicker than really almost anyone predicted. And do banks, corporates, SSAs have access to funding? Absolutely, 100% they do. So I guess my my summary is very, very strong market in Europe, very strong demand. Investors, when they choose to come, have seen still very high order books and can drive the price down 10, 20, 30 30 basis points from initial guidance to final landing spot. So in short, it's been a very strong Q1. If I look forward, there's no reason... I've got to caveat that and sort of touch wood. There's no reason why, certainly in the short term, that won't continue because investors are seeing terminal rates quicker and they're seeing where we are in terms of spread and yield and improving credit conditions as a real positive. I'll leave it there, Peter.
1: Thank you, Sean. That all sounds quite encouraging. Um, and with that, I uh, will move over to uh, North, North America again and I'll hand over to Jason Doe.
0: Okay, thank you uh, very much. As Peter mentioned to start the call, uh, markets are indeed uh, calmer over the past uh, couple of weeks. But you know, a calm market is not necessarily a feel-good market. So what's particularly interesting to me is that you know, in the U.S., the you know regional bank index you know remains close to its lows, and U.S. dollar IG senior and subordinated bank credit you know it has tightened from the wides, but it's still a decent amount away from the levels uh, from a month ago. And when looking at government bond space, you know, after popping higher, uh, bond yields in U.S. and Canada, they're close to revisiting the lows that were reached on March the 24th. So I think what's happening here, at least in government bond space, is that, you know, after the flight to quality flows, uh, the reversal of uh, volatile market conditions, you know, is the realization that the economic damage from tighter credit conditions uh, that was in place in the second half of last year already, and now compounded by um, probably more tightening in credit conditions by small banks, does present a real risk uh, to the growth downturn being larger uh, than otherwise so um, you know when you look at you know how important small banks are, you know they have loaned more than the larger banks in the u s over the past two years, and especially in areas like commercial real estate and also in uh, the residential uh, sector. So, you know, the upshot I think is that, you know, bond yields, you know, should be biased uh, lower through this year. Um, You know, you can have a situation where they move higher, but it's probably not sustained. So I do think this year is all about being uh, long duration and you just need to pick your battles on uh, size and timing. Um, Another factor that, you know, could fuel the push in bond yields lower, um, you know, is short uh, or I think maybe even more importantly, the lack of dry powder to add to shorts, so when you look at the um, CFTC data and the information on speculative accounts, um, there's still quite net short u s fixed income, and you know this is corroborated by what we 're seeing in leveraged uh, fund returns, so you know yields uh, leaking lower you know could you know be helped by uh, the positioning uh, angle um, topic i wanted to talk about is the outlook uh, for canada so um, we do maintain our view that the bank of canada will be on hold in 2023 the business outlook and consumer outlook surveys uh, that were released yesterday uh, did provide a sigh of relief um, because when you look at what's been happening in q1 the labor market has been quite strong and q1 growth is tracking um, you know to the strong side also but the outlook surveys which the bank uh, puts uh, quite a bit of weight on And the forward-looking information there, you know, is telling us that things are moving in the uh, right direction regarding inflation expectations and uh, production constraints. So that does support our view that the bank uh, will be on hold uh, probably this year. Um, When you look at market pricing, you know, the chance of a small cut by July and almost a full cut by September, you know, we think seems out of place versus the macro data and would really require an escalation of the financial stability risks. So fading near-term cut pricing does still continue to make sense, but we wouldn't fight the two rate cuts approximately that are priced into the end of uh, 2023. Um, You know, by the fourth quarter, yes, the chances of a rate hike would or rate cut would probably uh, start to uh, increase uh, quite significantly. And while our base case is um, the cutting cycle should start in Q1 next year, Obviously, that's splitting hairs uh, Q1 versus uh, Q4, but still, between now and Q3, uh, the chance of uh, a rate cut is very unlikely, we think.
1: And with that, I'll turn it back to Peter. Thank you, Jason. Um, As always, very insightful. And uh, our last speaker on the FX market is going to be Adam. Um, Adam Cole, here you go. Thanks, Peter.
4: So um, uh, in his introduction, Pete said we look at the outlook for the dollar and for other currency pairs. And I hope going forward it will be more of the latter and less of the former. Um, so. Just looking back um after twenty twenty two which was just wholly dominated by dollar up or dollar down up for the most part um for the first quarter of this year, quarter just ended um in fact uh the dollar has barely been a the theme um in net terms through q one uh the dollar index was down just one percent. And the high to low range through the course of Q1 uh, was just 5%, um, half the range of the previous two quarters. Um, so it, it, from FX, um, it, it does feel like we have left behind this um, very dollar-driven market that we live with for the whole of 2022. And I think, as we've talked about before, so long as we can leave behind this environment of co-movement of equity and bond markets then that can probably stay the case. Um, It was the parallel sell-offs in bonds and equities last year that really pushed us into this um, dollar directional quadrant of uh, of returns in FX and if we can re-establish a little bit of negative correlation between bonds and equities so that dollar direction should fade. So where where do we look for that going forwards, and what are the themes that will play out if we do have, um, as Peter highlights, a slightly calmer asset market background, and we don't have these parallel sell-offs in bonds and equities that we lived with for last year? And I think there are two themes and two, uh, at least two trades that come out of them that we come back to in FX in an environment where interest rates and interest rate spreads have widened but start to stabilize. The first is um, yen underperformance, uh, one of the big themes of last year, which I think is still valid. And that is all about um, the level of rates rather than the dynamic in rates and how the investment world has changed for a yen-based investor suddenly faced with um, hedging that costs after almost 20 years of almost cost-free hedging, suddenly um, in losing FX risk costs. And that bottom line from that for us is that it's yen negative. It leaves domestic investors, sellers of their own currency. And then the second theme I pick up is if rates and markets generally can stabilize, something we really have to focus on a little bit more is the dispersion of interest rates in levels terms. Even just within developed markets, we've not seen this degree of dispersion across markets um, in front-end rates, uh, not just back to Pre-pandemic, but back to pre-financial crisis um, is how far back we need to go to find an interest rate, uh, a level of interest rate dispersion as wide as it is now. And that, combined with a relatively calm asset market environment, uh, does suggest to us that we should be thinking a little bit more about carry in um, the G10 world. Not not to the extent that carry dominates our world as it did back pre-crisis, but um, that it's creeping onto the agenda as a viable FX strategy. So a couple of trades we like on the back of that over the medium term. One is to be long New Zealand and short Sweden, two currencies that have very different yields but very similar uh, risk characteristics. And then if we broaden it out to... G10 EM crosses to be long Mexico and short Canada again wide spread and volatility suppressed as the fundamental drivers for both of those currencies are in many cases similar. So those are the two themes I think in this calmer environment um, that we come back to um, is focusing a little bit more on the level rather than the rate of change of rates and that makes us negative on the yen and positive um, dramatically on uh, on carry, and with that, uh, back to Peter. Well, thank you, Adam. So I think what we've
1: learned, or at least what I've learned is um, as long as the market is calmer, um, we don't get any, and we don't get any spillovers into other asset markets again, and that's certainly the indication at present, um, as Blake has highlighted, the primary market remains open and remains quite active, and that's a positive sign, nevertheless. Whether or not this has any long-term ramifications for the economy remains an open question. And therefore, as Jason has highlighted, um, it's, uh, it's always difficult to fade the implied rate cuts uh, further out the curve. And certainly what Adam has highlighted um, is that whether or not we get co-movement between bond and equity markets is crucially important for where the dollar is going. But also as long as the level and the dispersion of rates is relatively wide, this opens up the possibility for Um, for carry trades in the FX market. With that, I thank everyone for listening in, and I hope you're going to join us again in two weeks' time for Macro Minutes.
2: This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded, and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.